Good morning. Uh, Superman. Batman. Spider-Man. And Iron Man. Whoops, more Okay. There we go. Um, they all have origin stories that have been made into movies, and very popular movies. Why are the origin stories so popular for superheroes? Perhaps it's so that we can get to know them more, who they are, and how they came to become superheroes in the first place. Oh, and before I forget, I should add, a residence, our resident superhero also has an origin story. <laughs> Super day, but we'll save that story for, for another day. Uh, Anyway, back to my point, all superheroes have, a, have an origin story. As we enter Advent season this year, we'll be spending a lot of time reflecting on Jesus' origin story. And now, when we do so, most of us start with Mary and Joseph, no, the no room at the end, the manger, the wise men, and all that. In fact, most of the time it can look something like this. The Christmas Story. About 2,000 years ago, in a small town called Nazareth, there was a little house where lived a young Jewish girl named Mary. Well, one day, something amazing happened. An angel of the Lord, Gabriel, a very important angel appeared to Mary. Who are you? Pledged to be married to Joseph. Because Joseph was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Just like the census of Rome to travel to the city of birth, Joseph and his betrothed wife set out to the city of Bethlehem. No, that's not it. Oh, no? They went to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's old town. They ride a donkey. <laughs> Those depictions may be somewhat based on the biblical account of the nativity. I'm not sure that's exactly how, how Matthew told the, uh, the Jesus's origin story on many levels. But uh, uh, today we want to uh, focus on what Matthew actually did uh, start his origin story. And it goes something like this, the first 17 verses of Matthew. Oh, that Ruth, she married Boaz, who had a 
probably be better watching that video instead of trying to read through that this morning. So, so Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which literally means an origin story of Jesus Christ. But why do you think Matthew started off with this genealogy? For most of my life, I thought it was really for historical purposes, a sort of for-the-record type of deal before getting into deeper into the story. But reading through the list of names was always so boring that I would just skim over those 17 verses and jump to Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem and the manger. But when you start to dive in and look at this below the surface of that passage, we can begin to see that there's plenty more here than a simple reading of boring names. To begin with, while it's partially historical, it's not a continuous generation-by-generation account. In fact, the genealogy is quite selective in what it included. In other words, there's a lot of holes in it. And so it's included for much more than just historical uh, reasons. And so the people who are in it, I think we should give second thought. It's significant why they're in it. One of the most obvious things that we can see by just looking at how it begins is that Abraham and David are highlighted in the genealogy. So we have, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of, of Abraham. This isn't surprising since the Old Testament prophesied in Genesis, uh, Genesis 12, it promised that the Messiah would be part of Abraham's lineage. And in 2 Samuel 7, it promised the Messiah would be part of David's lineage. And that's exactly what the original readers of Matthew's gospel would have expected to read that the Messiah descended from these great leaders and pillars of faith, Father Abraham, King David. But where it starts to get interesting is when we continue on in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Ah, when I read those, it's hard not to be thinking of that song. I get it. Uh, <laughs> Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Isaac and Jacob, uh, pretty popular folks from the Old Testament, probably... Most of us have heard of them before and, and remember their story. But what's notable about these two men? They weren't the firstborn sons in, in their families. And in the Hebrew culture, the firstborn was the important one. It was the, the chosen one, the one who had all the rights, the one who had all the honor. But here, curiously, we find uh, another son listed, not the firstborn. So our expectation would be to see firstborn males named. But the messy reality is, it's not just the firstborn. It's not just the honored ones. Jacob's inclusion in the genealogy is even more interesting. After all, do you remember his story? He's the one who stole the birthright from his brother Esau, who was the actual firstborn. In other words, Jacob was really a liar and a thief. So our expectation would be to see honorable men listed here. But the messy reality is, he also was a, a liar and thief. Verse 2 also mentions Judah and his brothers. Judah has two claims to fame, not, neither of them good. First, Judah sold his younger brother, Joseph. We know, remember Joseph from the Old Testament. He sold his younger brother, Joseph, into slavery. And secondly, Judah, slept, or Judah also slept with his uh, daughter-in-law. And so... Our expectation for the genealogy is good family man, but the messy reality is he first of all was a really bad brother and well, just yuck on the rest of that. <laughs> Continuing on in verse three, we have Tamar. 
Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. To begin, she's a Canaanite, an outsider, and that's never a good thing in ancient Israel. And second, this is the woman who seduced her father, her father-in-law, Judah, sleeps with him and becomes pregnant in the process. So again, our expectations collide with reality. We expect a woman of virtue. Instead, we have a foreigner and a seductress. Verse 5. Salmon, the, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So we have two more women, Rahab and Ruth. And Rahab, maybe Tamar posed as a prostitute. Rahab was a full-fledged prostitute. And if you recall from the story of Joshua, she was the one who helped uh, protect the Israelite spies that made the conquest of Jericho possible. And then there's Ruth. She was a foreigner, but she was of even more suspect background because she was a Moabite. Now, the Moabites originated from an incestuous relationship with Lot that I'll spare the details, but they have a very messy history with, with Israel. In fact, Deuteronomy 23.3 proclaims, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. And yet, curiously enough, smack in the middle of Jesus Christ's genealogy is a Moabite. So our expectation would be an Israelite, and yet the messy reality is a band foreigner. So the, the messiness continues in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, who was Uriah's wife? Bathsheba, the woman that uh, David had an adulterous relationship with. In fact, her reputation seems so sketchy that Matthew didn't even write her name. He, he referred to her as Uriah's wife. So, again, the expectation of a faithful wife and the reality is an adulteress. Now, we're on the subject of adulterers. Let's talk about the other part, uh, the other half, David. Would you describe his life as faithful and victorious? Well, the Bible does call him faithful, and they, do, and they do call him a man after God's own heart. But at the same time, we can all know by reading a story that his life had a lot of very sketchy parts as well. Not only did he sleep with Bathsheba, but he arranged for the murder of her husband uh, in the pro after that. So, our expectation, the greatest king of Israel, the messy reality is, though, we also get an adulterer and a murderer. Continuing on in verses 7 and 11, Matthew lists the 14 Judean kings. I'll spare from going back over each of those again. But of those 14, how many were considered faithful to God? It was really just two, Hezekiah and jo Josiah. Two out of 14 of those names. The rest were idolaters, murderers, incompetents, power seekers, and in general, just bad men. So our expectation for the genealogy would be godly kings, but the reality is idolaters, murderers, incompetents, and power seekers. Are you starting to get the picture of what Matthew is saying here? Let's continue on. In the last part of the listing, we have a bunch of obscure names like Achim and Elihud. Achim and Elihud. Who the heck are they? I did a, uh, a search on the internet, and the only thing I could find was Elihud Salazar. This man on Twitter who was apparently having issues depositing a check into his Capital One account. But I don't think that's the uh, Elihud that's being referred to in Matthew. Anyway, 
Most of these listed in the final section are a collection of unknown people whose names never made it into the history books for having done anything significant. So our expectation would be a who's who of, his, of those who were important in, Israel, in Israel's history. But the messy reality is also includes a bunch of no names. We already talked about various women mentioned in the genealogy, but there's a couple notes I wanted to make on that. First of all, that most uh, genealogies were all male listings. Uh, that was the standard for that time period. So just the inclusion of women in Matthew's genealogy would have been both significant and surprising for the first century reader. And perhaps even more interesting is the women who were included and who weren't. Instead of naming the great matriarchs like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, it's fascinating the ones that he, that he chose, like we already talked about. Given the women listed in the genealogy, is it surprising that Mary was considered scandalous by her contemporaries? It seems like she would fit right in with, with them. So what does this list tell us? We have the unhonored, we have a liar, thief, slave trader, prostitutes and customers, questionable foreigners, banned foreigners, seducers, adulterers, murderers, idolaters, incompetence, power-hungry politicians, and no-name good-for-nothings. Well, I would suggest it tells us four things. I think, first of all, Matthew's genealogy reflects the essential theology of Christianity, salvation by grace. Raymond Brown writes, Matthew's genealogy is telling us that the story of Jesus Christ contains as many sinners as saints and is written with the crooked lines of liars and betrayers and the immoral, and not only with straight lines. In other words, Jesus not only hung around with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, like we can read about later on in, in Matthew's gospel, but in fact, he was family to them. It was in his, in his bloodline. And secondly, God's ideas override human merit, worthiness, and personal holiness. Our expectation is that there would be this narrow line of purity that ran through the muck of human experience. But Matthew's uh, genealogy tells us that there was no uh, narrow line like this. His lineage was dropped straight into the mud and mire of thousands of years of history. Reading this genealogy, we should be struck by the fact that God will use anyone, not just the most talented or most well-known or the most faithful or the most righteous, are the most correct to, be, to bring grace to the world. Or as Gail Goodwin puts it, his is an equal opportunity mystery, ministry for crooks and saints. Third, perhaps we're far more interested in respect, reputation, and appearance than God is. As we saw, the, the origin story of Jesus Christ is very messy and seedy. And we, I think in the 21st century, we kind of find in this you know, in much different culture, we find that refreshing. But think about who Matthew was writing in the, uh, to in the first century, his first century readers. It was an audience who lived in a shame, shame culture in which shame on one's reputation was one of the worst things imaginable. So just the idea of guilt by association, you'd want to stay away from that uh, however you could. So it would seem like there would have been a clear temptation to whitewash this background or at least spin it in the best possible light. But not so here. Seems like Matthew was very fearless. He didn't want to just skip uh, that part. I think we, have, we can learn a lot from that. We can't just let our tendencies toward respect and reputation ever get in the way of showing God's grace to the world. And then fourth, 
Perhaps God accomplishes what he wants through those whom others regard as unimportant, forgettable, and damaged goods. Matthew was trying to tell us that Jesus Christ had an origin story that was messy and even embarrassing. That he had a ministry that was also very messy and complicated. But through all the messiness, he came to save messy people. The failures, the nobodies, the damaged goods. People like you and I. Reflecting on superhero origin stories, Robin Rosenberg, who wrote a book called The Psychology of Superheroes, she writes, At their best, superhero origin stories inspire us and provide models of coping with adversity, finding meaning in loss and trauma, discovering our strengths and using them for good purpose. Wearing a, t a cape or tights is optional. Perhaps that's why Matthew wrote the first 17 verses of his gospel the way he did. That when we dive into the details of Jesus' origin story, that when we feel like a failure or damaged goods in the eyes of God, we can still be inspired, we can find meaning, we can discover our strengths and use them for showing grace to the world. And yes, I'll agree with Robin Rosenberg, wearing a cape or tights is, is optional. 